Welcome to the Curious Creators Podcast, the place which allows you to explore your imagination, creativity, and listen to expert insights from the world of art and design. So joining the conversation today is Charlie Kickham, owner and founder of The Oak Folks and Facade Design Manager based in Reading. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks, thanks. Did I get your your job title and everything right? Are you, is that what you're doing at the moment? Are you a design manager? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, well, it's a funny one. I, yeah, I am. I'm a senior design manager, but having gone uh, as a sort of freelancer, as, a, as an individual outside of uh, PAYE, I, I'm now having to blur a lot of the lines. So I'm, I'm, I'm a designer, I'm a design manager, I'm a design consultant, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of having to do everyone's job because I am my whole company, uh, you know, as well as admin and uh, taking the bins out or whatever. But um, so, yeah, I'm strictly speaking, yeah, I'm a senior design manager or facade design manager. Um, but at the moment, uh, since going since going on my Todd, I'm having to blur those lines and do, do everyone's job. And what about the Oak folks then? Where does, where does this all um, sit in with your, yeah. your working life? So, look, facades has been, facades has been good to me and uh, I've built some, some beautiful buildings all over the world and that's, you know, that's fulfilling and that's, that, that's good and I, uh, you know, I don't regret that. I think uh, my last few projects have been quite, there's been a lot of red tape, um, so in uh, in rail and in in um, care and hospitals. So uh, I did uh, Liverpool Street Station redevelopment, and I did uh, a Great Ormond Street Hospital extension, and right now I'm doing a South London Maudsley uh, Hospital extension. And there's there's so much red tape around these things, um, and so much kind of commercial kind of fighting, you know, I probably spent 90% of my time covering my ass and 10% of my time like designing and solving problems. May, I don't, maybe that ratio is a little off, but it certainly felt that way sometimes. And I kind of fell out of love with facades a little bit um, because of all this red tape and the commercial aspect. And uh, Whilst I do find it challenging, and it's you know it's obviously good to be challenged all the time and pushed out of your comfort zone. Well, not all the time, but um, you know, uh, frequently. Um, so yeah, so basically, with a view to getting a bit more romance in my work, uh, I started looking at traditional timber framing, and as a as a designer as a sort of seasoned designer, if you will, um, I'm of the opinion that you can't design something that you don't understand. So I went away uh, just on my own, just with taking a few holidays here and there and a few long weekends, I went away of my own accord and I did a whole bunch of timber framing courses. So um, I, I did all kinds of courses up and down the country, everywhere that I could see that was doing an interesting course on traditional timber framing. And, uh, and then, you know, set about building and designing some of these things just, just for myself. Um, and then off the back of that, started to gain some interest from, from different people and, and do things for other people. So, um, so I went out, went out on my own to, to figure out how this is done. And then with that uh, theory fairly solidified in my mind, I was then able to, to design some things. So that's sort, of, that's sort of how the Oak Folks comes into my life. At the moment, it's, I'm trying to, I'm trying to redirect, eh? So uh, I've, I fell into facade design being an opportunist and just saying yes to opportunities that came my way. And that was great. I've been all over the world. I've lived in Thailand. I've worked in the Middle East. I've lived in Beirut. Uh, I've, like I said earlier, I've built some really beautiful things. So that, that's all fine being an opportunist and saying yes to, 
the things that come your way. However, what, if you do that too much, what happens is you end up at, at an end result and, you, and suddenly you wake up and think, hold on a minute, is this where I wanted to be? What, what, am, I, what am I doing here? And so, okay, uh, okay, I'm interested in facades. I, okay, that's, I, I'm not saying that it's, a, it's entirely a bore. You know, I love walking around big cities and taking in what people have done in, in interesting modern facades. And it must be really nice to see some of the, the, you know, the things you've worked on, you know, in London or wherever throughout the world that you've, you've done. That must be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really cool. It's a big buzz. Uh, you know, and a lot of these things are going to stand for many, many years after I've passed. And that's, that's a beautiful thing, you know. Um, every time I drive into London on the M4, uh, I see the the twisted, um, the twisted perforated wind turbine on the B Sky B building, um, which I was heavily involved in. Um, uh, a couple of Christmases ago, we were watching one of the Fast and Furious films, um, the uh, the one where they go to Abu Dhabi, and uh they they walk past some of the buildings that i designed and and then so i'm in the movie and i had a bit of excitement about that and then they go in my building uh go up to a party on one of the floors and then drive a car out of my facade <laughs> in through to the, the the building next door which i also had a, had a lot to do with so i'm i'm sat there watching this ridiculous movie Whereas me, I just see I just see plastic bottles that haven't been recycled floating around in the ocean, you know. So <laughs> ah, but they're still big, you know what I mean? There's don't say just that's massive, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, but in a bad way. Yeah, right now in a bad way. Yeah, yeah. until people like your good self puts in some good effort and we, we turn this shit around. But um, but yeah, so so I'm not saying facades are boring, you know. I, it's great and everything and but what's what's happened on this opportunistic journey is I've, I've eventualized at, a, at an end climax where I suddenly I look around and I'm thinking well, hold on is this the is this the journey I wanted to take am I where I want it to be and so that's sort of where the oak folks comes in I you know when I see oak frame buildings for really well done really well designed oak frame buildings and and so i also love building and working with my hands and so this seemed to be like a good way to go you know i i changed the huge scale high-rise facades down to something quite manageable you know uh two three-story house this is like a tiny project very bite-sized very easy um, very manageable, um, and uh, and then I apply this new skill and this new knowledge, and I make I create something beautiful. And the other thing that that is great about it is, you know, I was on Liverpool Street Station for four years, and and so, you know, we we as human beings we need um, gratification, you know. Uh, there's a lot of kind of self-help um, uh, self-help fitness guys out there now talking about right you know you do the hit program you get the result quickly then that solidifies in your mind that what you're doing is right and you and you continue you know or you lose the weight quickly and then you then you get the motivation and then you're away you know so that we as humans we need gratification much quicker than slogging your guts out for years and years and years before even seeing anything. And the other thing, particularly with, I know I keep bringing it up, but particularly with Liverpool Street Station is, it was, uh, it was compromise after compromise after compromise. And the architect didn't have a great design in the first place. And so I'd worked my nuts off for a long time. And what I see in the end, I mean, it's all right. You know, so that's so in my new design of of uh, my new corporate world that I'm sort of transitioning toward, and in, in the traditional oak framing, 
uh, I get the results quicker, I get the gratification quicker, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more involved because it's a much smaller project. Uh, and, uh, and it's, a, you know, a, again, it's a beautiful thing that's going to be around for hundreds of years, long, long after I've passed. And that's a, that's a nice little, that's a nice feeling as well. You know, you, you leave a mark here and, you know, you build one and another and another. And before you know it, you know, you've left plenty of marks all over the country beautiful little nuggets that have got your name etched in them somewhere you know that's a that's a lovely feeling so how does it compare so you've worked with a few larger facade companies like you mentioned in I think Middle East in Thailand was it um how does it compare working for those kind of those big kind of corporations compared to now doing your own thing um is it kind of is it less political nonsense around it's a good question. Yeah, it's it's much less political. You know, you've obviously you've got to follow the regulations in your design, you know, and, and, and those sorts of things will never change. You know, you're always going to have constraints in your design, whatever you might be designing. You're constrained by what materials are available, what manufacturing processes are available to those materials, what safety standards and regulations uh, apply, what structural integrity uh, is required on, on the product. You know, you're always going to be confined by a lot of things. But when you add the nonsense and the bureaucracy of it, it, it just, I just kind of fall out of love with it a little bit. Mm. Um, but sorry, your, your question was, how does it differ? So, I mean, sometimes in the facade world, it can feel very empowering because the architect wants one thing, the client wants one thing, and the engineer wants another thing and you're telling them all no kind of that kind of that kind of that this is how you're going to have it because this is this and that's why and etc etc it's quite empowering sometimes because you're in many respects you you're leading everything um you know the architect wants something that's not not possible to be built um or completely out of uh, the contract budgets and programs that everyone signed up to. Um, so, you, you know, you're bringing him down to earth. The client's always asking for, for more than what he's paid for, and you, you have to constantly remind him, no, pal, that's, that's not in the contract. You know, uh, if you want to pay extra, we can talk about it. I've noticed that about architect, because I'm a big fan of, you know, all the rubbish like grand designs and stuff like that. Why do, yeah. why do, when you go to an architect, why do they, you, you give them a brief, why do they come back with um, a result that's over two times as much as your brief, your budget? Why do they do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think they get excited, eh? I mean, um, I just, it's just not, it's just not satisfying the brief, is it? It's just not meeting what the clients want. It's giving them something they can't afford, probably. Well, was it the same in facades and all that? There's a lot of it, yeah. Is that not step one? Is that not design lesson one? Read the brief. Yeah, absolutely. Understand your constraints. Follow the brief. Yeah, and I don't know if um, I mean I, I've not worked with an architect personally, so I don't know how they what they do. But I don't know. Maybe they come with a you know your kind of your 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 brief and answer and answering your brief, and then maybe they they give you an option too, which is. You know, if, if you've got another 50% of your budget, this is what you could have. <laughs> I don't know. Do they do that or do they just go straight <laughs> for the 50% above? Well, I know, I know from a lot of experience in construction that uh, when the client is offered options that are more expensive, it doesn't happen. Do they ever offer options that are less expensive? Yeah, but ordinarily that will come from uh, a, a subcontractor. Um, so for example, like a, like a facades outfit, they'll say, right, look, uh, you know, you, you've engineered this to, uh, you know, 20 mil glass, you know, there, there are no blast constraints in the specification. It doesn't need to be that we can value engineer this back down to six mil glass, you know, these sorts of things. And this will be your saving or, um, or the architect's drawn this as a as an as a bespoke extrusion, um, absolute ludicrousy. Clearly, we're not going to run a new extrusion die 
for this aluminium. So what we'll do is you can get this one from the market that's very similar, straight off the shelf, no extra lead time, no testing, no, no die cost, and this is your saving. And the client will go, yep, that's what I want. And what happens in those cases, well, it depends what sort of contract you're on, but uh, what can happen in those cases is because you've provided saving, you'll get half the saving. And, and the other half will go back to the client. Okay. Um, but this is, in my experience, don't, don't get me wrong, architects are very smart people. I'm not bad-mouthing anybody here. Um, but architects have got a lot to do and a lot to know. Yeah. Um, whereas when it comes to the facade part, which is where I come in, um, it's not possible for them to know everything. You know, uh, they've got to know things about light switches and, and toilets and, and um, you know, how high this needs to be and whatever. They, they've got to know everything about all the internals of the building as well. There's no possible way, nor, nor, why, nor should they need to know everything about the facade. Otherwise, I'd be out of a job. You know, I guess um, it's why they go to the uni for seven years or whatever it is, isn't it? So, yes, it's like a it's like a doctor, <clears throat> isn't it? Seven years. Um, so I was just I was just thinking, okay. So you so you've started up the Oak folks fairly recently. You've started up your design facades, your own thing. You've recently, yeah. like not too long ago, had a had a baby boy. Yeah. So you've yeah. done three massive. Well, you know you've two two big things changes in your in your job world um, and yeah. what kind of i'm hoping so i'm hoping um obviously a lot of students past present current are going to listen to this and i think your kind of your your background your experience is really interesting to them because we have obviously a lot of creative people yeah um, at the university for one um so a lot of them will be wanting to do their own thing probably um yeah so what made you take those those kind of those two steps at a pretty similar time is it something you've always been kind of wanting to do, building up to? Um, yeah, tell us a bit well, about that. I think I think there's a couple of points to say on that. The, the first point is, you know, I've owned my own business previously. And and the reason that has, has occurred as it has is because I, I don't agree, I, I don't conform to this idea that we should all work nine to five, five days a week. Um, or, or even, good Lord, you know, a lot of people are working more, 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 more hours, you know, seven till seven and seven till nine, five days a week, um, which, is, which is nonsense to me. Uh, I, I, you know, and the, the only difference between the people that work nine to five and the people that don't, well, other than the, the, other than the, the few exceptions, um, is the, the idea that, oh, hold on a minute, I don't have to, you know? And, you know, you're, you're Elon Musk's and you're, um, and, you're, and you're Richard Branson's. Yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm sure they'll be putting in all the hours under the sun when it's required and there's a deadline. You've got you to get something off the ground. But that's not the point of working for yourself. The, po the point of working for yourself so you can set your own hours you know this morning my wife wasn't very well so i took the baby she went back to bed and uh, i started work a couple of hours later than i than i would have done so it was you all know, about I don't a, work mondays a change of a change of lifestyle then yeah change of lifestyle so that was so that was where i originally originally started to uh, divert out of working for the man and set up on my own and then more recently, why I've made these couple of changes right at the crux of the baby's been born. This is born out of um, COVID. So I've always wanted to get back to working for myself. Uh, and, I, and I think, I don't know, I, I often joke that sometimes I left my balls in Thailand. I, I kind of lost my, not my drive, but my... I didn't want to take so many risks anymore. Um, and so I was kind of stuck for a long time in a job that I really, I really didn't like at that point. But what happened is, and, and, and the reason I was stuck is because I'd worked my way up fairly substantially up the ladder. I was on a fairly hefty salary. Um, and what I wanted to do is transition away to Oak 
oak frame and oak frame design. And I knew that I'd have to start, unless I was very good at negotiating, I'd have to start more or less, more or less at the bottom of the ladder again. Now that's, that's a big hit. That's a big hit. Nobody likes a pay cut. It's a big decision to, to take, isn't it? To make your kind of life better, but you've got to take those sort of sacrifices. It's tricky, isn't it? It is, it is. But what furlough did for me is it cut my salary in, uh, is it half? I can't remember. Half or something, whatever it was. And it made me realize that I, I don't need all that money, you know? And, um, and, 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 and it proved the concept, you know? It proved the concept to me. I was on furlough for whatever it was, six months or something, I can't remember. And so it proved there was, that's enough proof there that I don't need all that money. I can live on something much less. So that gave me the, uh, the kickstart. So it, not only did it kick me out of the job I was in, but it also uh, solidified that idea that I don't need all that money. So those two things together uh, set me off in this direction where I'm now, you know, pretty, pretty free and flexible and I don't work hard long days. I don't work Mondays. You know, life is good. Has the, the stresses of kind of doing your own thing, has is, is that outweighed anything yet? Or is it kind of, you know, currently you're managing that okay? Because there's a lot more, more things to deal with, you know, doing your own thing. Like maybe you could talk about some of the extra kind of challenges you've, you've, you're faced with when you set up your own thing. Yeah, so look, I hate accounting. I hate sending invoices. Uh, I hate doing the accounting. I hate tax returns. Um, but, uh, you know, I take a leaf out of Tim Ferriss's book and I, I delegate and I automate and I, I, I don't really do those things that I don't like to do. Not very much, at least. Um, so, you know, there are those challenges. Um, and the other thing is, you know, when I set up my first business in Thailand, uh, I did it with the safety net of doing it alongside my day job. And what that did it, is that didn't put any pressure on the business to immediately provide. You know, I was able to still pay all my bills with my day job, set the business up on the side. And then when it, when it was nurtured to a point where it could sustain itself, then I stepped away from my full-time job. Now, that, that was a, there was some beautiful synergy there. And uh, when I set up my second business, what, well, that didn't work for a few reasons, but one of the reasons it didn't work was I didn't have a full-time job. All I had was a big pot of money that gradually dwindled and dwindled and dwindled and dwindled to nothing. You had that um, safety net of like a regular income to, to kind of help. Right. You yeah. Right. You've got to have that. You've got to have that. Now, in this case, my, this is my third company. Um, in this case, um, I didn't have a full-time job supporting me. I didn't have a big pot of money that dwindled over time. So this was a whole different, uh, whole different experience. But the reason this worked is uh, I'd already been in the facade sector for such a long time that I'd built my network of contacts quite substantially. I'd built my experience quite substantially. And I, I actually managed to get my first client before taking the leap of faith and setting up the company which is what I did in my first business um you know before forking out for five computers and employing a couple of staff in Thailand I got the first contract I, I did the work myself evenings and weekends and lunch times got that contract and then boom uh invested in in staff and and software and hardware and so what I was able to do this time around, this third company, this uh, design company that I'm running right now, uh, was I, I reached out to some of those contacts that I'd made along my journey, uh, offered my services, and yeah, I, I got the first got the first contract and then made the leap of faith. So that's a massive help, isn't it? I'm just I'm just trying to put myself in someone's shoes that hasn't got that maybe that network if they're you know an artist or sculptor or illustrator kind of starting off um without that well, you network, need to get it you need to get it that's step one you can't just set up a business uh set up a website and just expect something to happen nothing happens you know uh there's a there's a young lad he's he was about 17 he, he's perhaps 
a bit older now, but he's about 17 when I first caught him on Instagram and he was forging in his back garden and he was making lots of lovely things. Now he made a whale, a little curved uh, bottle opener shaped like a whale. Really beautiful, great design, great execution, really well done. And he put it for sale on his Instagram. And if I'm not mistaken, he, he, he created a bit of a build up to it. So he sort of said like, these are gonna be released on this date, um, you know, pre-order now, get in line. There's only so many, you know, he, he built some sort of suspense and some anticipation and, and conjured up some, uh, you know, some interest. Uh, and and he, and they flew right. And then he had his thing. He had his clients. He had his network. Bam, done. And and I think I think the guy's been on the news um, for for doing this. And now he's making all sorts of lovely things. And all he does is piss around in the for in his homemade forge in his parents' back garden. You know, and he's loving life. So my point is, uh, you need minimal investment minimal risk minimal investment get your network so this guy for example got it from instagram get your first product going get it off the shelves okay and then you can commit some more time and some more money and some more risk i was going to say how do um so then do your subsequent clients do they come from kind of again from your network or kind of from word of mouth and you know, how, how does that happen is it just is it just something that kind of builds up over time yeah it's something that builds up over time um in in the facade sector it's it's a lot of word of mouth and it's a lot of making calls i mean i'm not really i, I can talk you know i can talk uh i got the chat but i'm i'm not really a salesman and i I also resent having to sell myself and prove myself. You know, I, I know what I'm doing. You know, you, you come to me, you know what I mean? But that kind of, that pride and that ego can be, can be your worst enemy sometimes. But, but yeah, I think uh, I'm fortunate enough and blessed enough that uh, I don't have to do too much kind of begging or, or, or selling myself. Um, word of mouth gets around pretty well and uh, you know I can I, I can call from my network uh, and you know thing, things things will happen so how do you balance the uh, the facades and the oak folks then um, you know right, so I, I sound, it sounds like maybe just the facade bringing the kind of most amount of money at the moment and then is the oak folks a bit of a you're talking about you know starting someone else up with a bit of a support yeah, yeah. blanket is that yeah exactly at the moment? yeah yeah exactly with a bit of support on the side so i think i i think i tailed off on one of your last questions what i was going to say was uh the opportunistic side of me has led me down this facade route now you you must you must enjoy what you do you must you know uh this this nonsense that our parents have taught us about Right, you've got to go to work, you've got to work hard, you've got to get a steady job. Um, nonsense, absolute nonsense. You go and do what you love doing and figure out the money after. There's a beautiful, um, there's a beautiful thing on YouTube by Alan Watts. Um, it's, uh, it's called, What If Money Were No Object? And so the thing about the Oak folks is, uh, I'm doing it as a hobby now, right? which is where, where a lot of great businesses start, yeah? So I'm, I am doing what I love. It's my hobby. I'm doing what I love, yeah? And then when you get good enough with it, then you can start demanding money for it. So you did BA product design at Nottingham Trent with myself back in the I day? did, yeah. Sandwich. Um, a sandwich, yeah, yeah. What... Why did you want to get into design in the first place? Uh, look, I'm a, uh, I'm a creative and I'm a, and I'm a problem solver. Um, and I'm a, I'm a driver. I like to, I like to, 
make things happen. And so these things together, it just seems like design was a good route. You know, I, I get irritated by shit design and I get very excited by good design. Um, and, uh, and I am myself creative and love sketching and solving problems. So all those things together, there was just, whilst, what, you know, if you'd have asked me when I was 18, what do you want to do? Or 17 or 16, what do you want to do? I'd be a very confused young man. But all the, all the not the answers, but all the, um, all the ammunition. So that, you know, yeah, I, I get excited by good design. I get really excited by good design. Um, and I get very annoyed and irritated by shit design. So it just seemed like this was, this was the way to go. Um, you know, when I walk past the, the Aston Martin garage, you know, like, well, I don't know, some nonsense sentence. I can't walk, I can't walk past the Aston Martin garage, you know, um, I love the new Defender, um, you know, uh, Oak Frame Houses, you know, I'm, the phone is out, I'm taking pictures, you know, if somebody's done it well, um, and equally, uh, if somebody's not done it well, I do like to take a picture and rant about it as well on social media or whatever. Um, I think, you know, Dyson springs to mind when we talk about this. The, those old hand dryers, you know, how, how many years were we washing our hands, going to the hand dryer, pressing that little silver button, holding your hands under there for a few seconds, kind of giving them a rub and going, yeah, is this doing anything? Wipe it on your trousers and out you go. How many years did we do that for? 20 years? What? Before somebody said, hold on, hold on. Somebody's not executed this solution very well. Let me take a look. Yeah, a lot of people still moan about them. What, the Dyson ones? Yeah. Really? So they're, they're, they're too loud. They don't um, dry the ends of my fingers. Oh, come off it. Listen, it's you'll always have critics. Yeah, you always have critics, and uh, and if you stopped any of those critics for a minute and said, "Look, you show me how to make a better one," or shut up. Yeah, I think I think the way that that Dyson came from it was like a sustainability point of view from energy usage and all that, which is great, and then a hygiene point of view. And I think, quite frankly, they smashed both of those. So, yeah, I mean, Jesus, yeah, absolutely. Not only does the bloody thing work, you know, not like the bloody Alessi juice squeezer. Not only thing, not only does it work, but it works really well. It saves the environment and it's more hygienic. I mean, Christ. What, what do you want? There's your dissertation, kids. There's your dissertation right there. Um, don't all don't all do the same dissertation. That's one, I don't know if you finished answering that past question, but I, one thing I meant to ask you um, when you were talking about facades and stuff was when we were talking about architects, what's the, it'd be interesting to know about the kind of the current drive around sustainability. It'd be probably wrong of us if we didn't mention it. Um, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. something that's like massively driven by architects? Do you, do you think it's forced? Has it been around for a while? Um, is there things that you, you're doing or you can do to kind of help that situation? Or was it just yeah. was it like a lot of things and it's a bit we're a bit late for the party? Yeah, yes, that's a good question. So um, there's a lot of regulations that we need to follow and regulations are updated every few years. Um, you know, so the the walls and the wall makeup needs to achieve a certain what we call U value and R value, which is the heat transmission through the wall. Um, it, and uh, you know the glass again it's important we, we have all sorts of technologies uh, triple glazing um, hard and soft coatings on the glass um, we have a we have a coating called uh, low e which is low emissivity which is where uh, the coating on the glass reflects the infrared rays and lets in uh, the ultraviolet. So what that means is it lets the light in, but not the heat in. Yeah. Um, okay. And 
you know, we would do things like we would fill the cavity between the double glazing with argon. Um, you know, we set we set the cavity between the two bits of glass to to a specific amount. So, for example, as you increase that gap between the two glasses, you're getting uh, better insulation until you get to a point where you've then got room for convection and uh, if the air can circulate between the two panes, then convection can occur and it will transmit the heat from one pane to another, or in fact, the cold from one pane to another. Well, not the whole, not the cold in convection, obviously, but the heat. And so, so you know, there's, there's technology and there's testing to, to say that, you know, 20 mil is the optimum space between two bits of glass. Yeah, anyway, I'm probably going down a bit of a rabbit hole now, but, you know, your U values, uh, it's important. Is this been around for a while though? Like, or yeah, you know, it, did someone you know five ten years ago go right? Oh shit, we need to think about sustainability. Or um, is it always going to so be? Yeah, you know, been so in at. terms of, I guess there's two there's two parts to that answer. I think so. <clears throat> a lot of the stuff we make is made with a lot of chemicals, and there's a big carbon footprint to steel. And aluminium. Um, a lot of chemicals that go into uh, some of the insulation, not the rock wall or the mineral wall, but into the PIR insulation. And you're not going to meet the U value targets if you've only got rock wall. You know what I mean? So there's so some things sort of contradict each other. Um, there's a thing called BRIAM where it looks at it looks at sort of how much aluminium you've used and, and where it's come from and things. And, but in terms of sort of recycling side of sustainability, I think there's a lot more that could be done. It's, I, don't think the, I don't think the construction sector has really been shaken up enough in terms of sustainability. You know, we, we have our regulations for um, air leakage and heat transmission and, uh, and all these sorts of things. Uh, but we don't we don't really have any sort of standards in in like oh you know thirty percent of every building must be uh, must use recyclable um, things you know we don't have anything like that um, so that's a shame but you know I think one thing at a time because at the moment uh, the facade sector is flooded with. Uh, new ideas, thoughts, and constraints about fire. You know, since the 72 people died in Grenfell, uh, our industry has been consumed with the fire regulations. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of, can I say that? Yeah, I suppose a lot of good has come from that tragedy. And we are in the sector now hot on it. Um, and, uh, you know, buildings that are going up now uh, against the current regs are a lot better. Uh, some of it is still a bit conflicted because everyone, there are some knee-jerk reactions, you know, the, um, uh, the um, Regulation 7 in approved document B some of those changes, uh, and I don't know if they're, they're a bit knee-jerk, not, not particularly well thought out. I think it could have been done a bit better. Um, you know, there are things like uh, combustibility in the, in the facade and, and on the balconies, you know, they say you can't use any product um, on a balcony that is combustible, uh, which is fine, don't, you know, don't get me wrong, but Balustrades are often made from glass, and uh, you can't have a monolithic pane on a balustrade. It needs to be laminated, which means two layers that are fixed together with an interlayer. Well, that interlayer is PVB. Not always, but more often than not, it's PVB. That's plastic. That's combustible. You know, and they, they'll make exceptions in the regulations for things like. Uh, windows and gaskets they say right these are exempt from this regulation and then they won't say that for the balustrade 
you can't use combustible products in the balustrade. The PVB is combustible. Right. Okay, so we can't have glass balustrades anymore. Is it? Anyway, I've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole there. I don't know if that was interesting or not, but um, but yeah, we our sector is 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 really uh, uh, what's the word? It sounds like there's um, yeah. I mean, like you said, the <clears throat> the the whole fire regulations. It sounds like obviously that's a massive thing, and it has been for <clears throat> since since the tragedy. Um, and it sounds like the the I don't know how big the industry is probably pretty massive right um and it sounds like to, to change something it takes a while unfortunately um because you have to kind of get people on board you probably have to go through lots of testing regulations um but yeah it sounds like everyone's making the right the right noises yeah it's going in the right direction it's a, it's a difficult journey um it's a difficult journey but you know if your head's in the right place um it it can be all right um it does bring with it some problems. I just had a problem recently on a project where uh, I wanted to use a particular product on a roof, uh, which was an A2 product, and the client wanted to use another roof product uh, because, because it had another test called a B roof T4 test, but it was only a B2 product, and the product I wanted to use was A2 which is limited combustibility, which is what it should be. Well, I, I mean, the building was under 18 meters, so technically we, we get out of it, which, which again, is this bit of a silly thing about the uh, approved dot B. And I don't know why, when we revised it after Grenfell, why did we not lower that? 18 meters is nonsense, you know. Um, why, why do we only use limited or non-combustible products in buildings over 18 meters. You know, all right, don't get me wrong. I, I understand the concept behind it. Okay, the length of the ladder from the, the fire department and how long it takes to evacuate people from a, from a building that is greater than 18 meters. Don't get me wrong, I get all that. But if we're still building buildings, right, which we are, then why not just say 10 meters? No, eight meters why why are all this all these new rules they come into act when the building is over 18 meters you know when that happened how many buildings have come across my desk that are just under 18 meters so that they the contractor can get away with cheaper products what what have we solved anything nothing it's frustrating and and again you know this this plays into uh, what i was telling you earlier about uh, the bureaucracy and the nonsense of it. I want to get into something a bit more romantic. I want to transition across to traditional oak framing. There's there's too much nonsense in facades. So would that would that be your without wanting to lose any clients from your facades? You know, was that is that the long term goal? You know, you know, make lots of beautiful oak frame buildings and yeah, I mean. Uh... I dare say I'll be using a lot of skills that I've learned in the facade industry and with a bit of luck, um, I'll have an opportunity to build an oak frame building with a spectacular bit of glazing on it where, uh, you know, and, and transition um, some of the technology. So I think that's a great, it's a, that's a great thing about design, you know, going into one industry, learning some things going into another industry and taking those things with you, that knowledge and those technologies, I think that's, uh, that's one of the great little uh, cheat sheets, one of the great little, little extras that, uh, that they don't tell you about, you know? Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you've, you've talked about a couple of authors and I think a YouTube clip previously, but is there anything... Um... Any other kind of interesting things you've you've read or watched or listened to? It could be other podcasts, you know, over the last um, last couple of months or years, maybe that you could um, suggest. Uh, when I was working with Tom Dixon, one of the things he said to me is, "It's always stuck with me." And I, I, often I find myself. Um, 
really consumed by the, the function of a product and, and it's, it's good to it's good to be focused on that but if it's not beautiful then you know not many people are going to buy it probably I, Dyson's got away with that he's the exception he he put some pretty ugly stuff out there but but well, uh, no beauty is in the eye of the beholder I say I mean true true know, what what's the point of covering something in some um nice curved plastic if it's not needed but but yeah well you know you've got to yeah i mean adding plastic where it's not needed that's a whole nother debate but what tom said to me was sometimes it's about not doing too much but about getting the right materials and the right proportions and i think there's something in that and when you look at his designs and you think about that quote, you know, that's that really, you can see it in his products, you know. Um, was it William Morris that said, uh, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or think to be beautiful. And, you know, there is an aspect there of, you know, you do have, you do buy things just for beauty, you know. What, what, otherwise, it wouldn't be such a thing as a sculpture or a, a wall painting. You know, we do buy things just for beauty as well. That's, um, that's probably a really nice place to end. Um, although we'll finish off with one more. Um, <clears throat> might be a tricky question. Might not be. You, 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 might, you may have answered some of it. Um, what advice would you give yourself at the beginning of your career? What, you know, knowing what you know now, learning what you've learned, what would you have done differently or what would you have told yourself at the start of your career? I would have told myself, um, it, it's a tricky one here because, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into the, the butterfly effect and, you know, I, I am only here, me now because of the journey that I took, but putting that aside for a minute and just, just answering your question um, more simply, I'd have told myself, hit it harder, you know, hit it harder. I think there's, there are a lot of opportunities out there. And for those who just uh, make sure they're at pound a pint on the Wednesday, um, but don't give the same drive to making sure that that dissertation is the best dissertation they could possibly write. You know, the energy is misplaced. And uh, I, I think I would tell my younger self, just go harder, you know? There were some products in my sketchbook that I could have made, you know? Uh, there were some products I, you know, why, why did I spend my, why did I spend all of my student loan on booze? You know, I could have, we had a great time. China. We had a great time. We did. We did. No, I don't want to change that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that away from my younger self. But, you know, I could have flown to China on my, uh, on my summer holiday. Uh, I could have gone to see some factories. I could have got some prototypes made. I could have, I could have produced a product. You know, my, I could have gone to my end of year show with um, a plethora of, ideas that are physically in front of you to see and test and try um you know yeah i'd have told my younger self go harder don't uh, don't kick back too much have fun but don't kick back too much you know don't put your feet up there's no time that's interesting yeah it's a really um yeah i think being a student at any age but certainly if you you kind of come in after school like you know we did it's um it's a learning experience, isn't it? It's um, probably some of the first times that people have lived away from home and cooked for themselves and all, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's interesting you saying that. Um, but it's, it's nice to know you had a good time. <laughs> I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it. But, Absolutely. you know, hypothetically speaking, if I were to give my younger self some advice, it would be go hard. Fantastic. I, I really messed up my major project and I regret that. Um, I think it was the, I set myself 
on a wrong brief, on a, on a wrong journey. And, I, and even then I didn't execute it well. Was um, your major brief the, the pods? Yeah. So just for people listening, you, um, yeah, I mean, I can't remember all the details, but you essentially designed a, a, a pod, like a sleeping pod, like you, you would see in Japan now. Yeah. Those, those sort of kind of countries. Um, yeah. I don't know if it was before they they came out over there or not. I mean, there's some some here too, obviously, but um, I I do feel like that was massive. And yeah, like I mean, you know, <clears throat> don't want to make you feel too bad, but you know that that could have been a huge thing because I went to Japan and I slept in a few, and I was just thinking of you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I mean, yeah, it was an idea, and uh, but. I could have executed it much better. I could have put more effort into it, more thought. Um, you know, I could have put it out to various companies. You know, I could have done something. You know, could have spoken to the the organisers at Glastonbury or whatever. You know, I could have done it better and harder. Um, but equally, I could have come up with a better idea and done a different project. Well, um. Yeah, no, it was good. And for, for any, well, designers, but product designers, especially, um, you know, I, I certainly always bang on about prototyping. I think one thing you did well, and we can't really show this because it's a podcast and you did this 15 years ago, but I don't know, maybe we could find some pictures somewhere, but you, you built um, some amazing prototypes in your bedroom. Um, we used to live in a, like a big, a big house with big rooms and big ceilings. And you built like a couple of full-size prototypes. You slept in them. And then, they, yeah, they were awesome. Yeah, that was a good. That was that was a good part of it. I've I'd forgotten about that, but yeah, I think um, prototyping is a. You know, you can't shortcut that. That that's no. like the most important uh, aspect uh, of the cycle of design. You know, you need to test. Um, you need to test. You need to prototype, and with that project. There was no way of doing like a mid, like you know, you. One of the biggest problems with the the capsule hotel is people look at a picture of it or the, a video of it or whatever, and they think, "Oh, is that claustrophobic to be in that small space?" You've got to build a full size prototype and get these guys in it and say, "Right, you tell me, is it is it claustrophobic? Do I need to sack off this whole idea? Get inside." Sit there, tell me, is it too small? Is it claustrophobic? You know? Um, yeah, and you don't know so yeah, pro- doing that, do you? You don't know. If you don't test it, you don't know. Uh, there's a great, just coming off of the back of um, the conversation about prototyping and how important that is, it is also important to know where to draw the line because you can sketch and prototype and test year upon year upon year you need to know where to draw the line. And uh, there's a great quote from the guy who invented the Brompton bicycle. He said, uh, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing wrong. I thought it was a Homer Simpson quote when I first read it. But what he means by that is the feedback from the five guys in your testing facility is going to be nothing compared to thousands and thousands of customer feedback that you will get when you release the product. So he knew that the bike wasn't 100% ready. You know, you could argue it's not 100% ready now, even after all this evolution, it's still got a few more tweaks to do and he'll keep evolving that design uh, as time goes on. But my point is you need to know where to draw the line. You know, you need to know when to stop sketching when to stop prototyping, when to release the product. And then you could look at it from a different way too. You look at, um, we've talked about Dyson a few times. So he produced 5,127 prototypes, I think, before he got to his DCO1. That's a lot of, that's a lot of prototypes. That's, you know, that's a lot of um, testing and, and prototyping. And then it wasn't until he produced his 5,127th one that it was right and it worked, you know, and then, and then he took it to market. And then, yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got to, um, you've got to go through the process and with, with a different product, it's going to take a different amount of prototypes 
And when you're talking about electricals, you know, it's tricky. You know, I mean, I, there weren't any Dyson batteries um, available when, I, when mine went pop. So I replaced it with a Chinese one and now the handle gets really hot. And if I use it for 10 minutes, I can't even hold, I gotta hold it with an oven glove. You know, what the hell's going on inside that thing? You know, so if you've, if you've got a prototype 500 times, then you've got a prototype 500 times, you've got to get it right to, an, to a certain extent. And, and, and that is, isn't going against what I said before, that's only compounding the point I was making. You need to know where to draw the line. And that may be 500 prototypes down the way, you know. But if you're doing, you know, if you're doing something simpler, because this, you know, the DC one, that's the handheld uh, vacuum, is it not? No, the, um, his first, his first vacuum, first ever vacuum. First vacuum, right, right. So there's all sorts of new technology in there. Is there not? W was there not? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the cyclone and yeah, it was, it was a new, yeah. it was a new, exactly. um, a completely new so, thing. Yeah. Right, exactly. So if you are reinventing the wheel, then you're going to need a lot of prototyping. Yeah. You know, if you're just changing a, a, a laptop from a, from a plastic uh, surround to an aluminium one, eh, you just need to prototype once, probably twice, maybe, you know, it depends how, how much you're breaking the mold, how much you're reinventing the wheel and, and, and how groundbreaking your, your idea is, you know, the, the young lad who did the whale, the forged, the forged steel whale bottle opener that I talked about, he did a few prototypes until he got it right. But if it's already opening the bottle and it already looks nice, stop. Stop evolving the design. Release it. I guess you then know, you've got to know where to draw the line. Yeah, you know, you could you could then come into things like um, you know looking at reducing materials and make it more sustainable and more efficient, things like that. But that's a whole different area, I guess. And you, and you can, and that's right, but that can be an evolution of the design, let's say. Yeah. You know, let's say that, uh, let's say that next year's Brompton that he releases has got uh, a 30% reduction in materials. That doesn't mean he shouldn't have released the last Brompton, the last model, the last, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you're obviously overusing um, plastics and electronics that cannot be recycled, then yeah, put some, put some thought into it. But it, it doesn't, doesn't have to be everything is sorted on your first product launch. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, I agree. Um, I, yeah, I guess you could look at it a different way and there's a as you say there's a there's a line to, to draw and and that comes with experience right and you could say that okay if, if you can save 30 percent more material and you it delays a launch two months then you could look at okay what all that material i'm saving over the thousands or whatever you're selling is quite a lot you know i remember working on um some things that dice maybe and you save a tiny amount of plastic but you times that by the millions that they're going to sell it's a huge amount so every gram counts I think yeah. that's just something that comes with experience, isn't it? Yeah. In the world, yeah. Of, in the world of design and creativity. So. Yeah, you've got to weigh up the, the risk and the reward, like every decision. But, um, but yeah, once you're so far established, like Dyson, you've got so many engineers working for you uh, and so much, um, so much time and effort and money going into one product that is going to be mass produced, then yeah, absolutely. Save every gram that doesn't need to be on it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Charlie. Um, thanks for being part of this podcast. Um, it's been really interesting. I hope um, hope the listeners find it interesting. And like I mentioned, I think some real key things for, for kind of current students and future students and anyone that's kind of looking to start up their own thing. I think some, some real good nuggets of information there. Um, yeah, no worries. I'll give you a, I'll give you a link to uh, the videos and products that I mentioned, so you can. Oh, great! Yeah, and we'll try and put them in the, the 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 info of the podcast. Um, so just just to end on, um, so they can find anything to do with the Oak folks at um, 
the dot oak dot folks on Instagram. I think I've got that right. Yeah. And also uh, the oak folks dot uk. Or I think you're going through some. Um, yeah, I put that stuff. down to to maintenance at the moment because uh, on this business I went for a Spotify, a Spotify, sorry, Shopify platform, which is a continual sort of subscription sort of payment. A great business model for them, but not great if you're if you're not constantly selling products from it. So, um, so I, I put that down to on uh, maintenance at the moment because uh, there's too much money coming in from other avenues and not much on that side. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I, I urge people to yeah follow you on Instagram at least if you, you put on, you put on some really nice um, some work you do with the oak frames there. Um, so yeah, I urge people to follow you on that. And um, yeah, thank you again, and thank you um, everyone for listening. No, thank you. It's been nice. Cheers. If you've enjoyed today's discussion, don't forget to follow this podcast for free on your podcast app of choice and avoid missing out on any future panel discussions. Keep up to date with us via social media at Art Design Wales and we will see you next time.